Chapter 2. Double Catastrophe. Augustine and the Reformation. Creeds. The invasion of history by Christ originally reconfigured our whole conceptual universe, the kind of being we are, who our God is, their aspirations for us, and how we negotiate the perilous path back to their presence. What we believe about these vital subjects has incalculable influence on how we love and how we live. Jesus ministered and taught for three short years in a remote corner of the Middle East to a small audience of the largely marginalised, dispossessed and wounded. His recorded words are numbered in the mere hundreds and are more concerned with moral instruction and healing encounters than doctrinal content. So what constitutes the body of early Christian teachings is extrapolation. It is the fruit of improvisation, elaboration, and to a debatable extent, inspiration. So it is not surprising that before the New Testament is even canonized, we find varying schools of thought, competing orthodoxies, schisms, and heresies. Regrettably, the cumulative effect over succeeding generations is to rewrite the core narrative in tragically destructive ways. God-touched souls have recurrently provided pinpricks of light amid the great darkness. We agree with the historian of religion, Diana Bass, who writes that the Christian church has never gotten it completely right, but it has not gotten it completely wrong either. Our point is that when the dominant institutions did get it wrong, they often got it tragically horrendously, catastrophically wrong. If this sounds like hyperbole, history says otherwise. The first decisive turning points came with a collision of ideas and personalities in the 4th century. Out of the ashes of that conflict emerged the Christianity that would dominate the world for the next 1100 years, until the Reformation compounded the damage. But we will come to that. The first consequential harm began in the decades immediately before Augustine's innovations. A brief survey of the earliest creeds may be the most economical way to pinpoint the critical digressions from one of the twin compass points with which the original story began, the parental nature of God. The first Christian creed, called by tradition the Apostles' Creed, presents us with few problems. Here is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell, Hades, or the spirit world. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostles' Creed is the most widely accepted statement of the fundamentals of Christian belief, originating in the first Christian centuries. It is first mentioned by name in the fourth century, and was probably used as a profession of faith at baptism. Surprisingly to many Latter-day Saints, we can embrace the principles here outlined. Our daughter, who is a member of the church, offered to affirm this creed to qualify to enroll her daughter in a Christian primary school. 
her Latter-day Saint affiliation provided a barrier nonetheless. By the standard of the Apostles' Creed, Latter-day Saints are Christian, without caveats. By the 4th century, problems quickly multiply. As we indicated in the introduction, the simplicity of a gospel message in which God's Son came to heal mankind was quickly overwhelmed by the Church's arcane philosophical disputations on the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. By the 4th century, the focus of theological argument was too academic for most Christians to follow. The struggle over the doctrine of the Trinity revolved around the question, is Christ of similar or the same substance as the Father? The Church's response was enshrined in the Nicene Creed. Here's an excerpt from the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance or essence, with a Father, by whom all things were made. First formulated in the Council of Nicaea in 325, this influential creed attempted to sort out the era's controversies regarding the nature of God the Father and of Jesus Christ. A focus of debate was over the Greek term used to characterize their relationship. The highly arcane focus was the question, would it be homoousios of similar substance or homoousios of the same substance? The latter term won out, establishing a key component of Trinitarian doctrine. It is starting with the Nicene Creed that Latter-day Saints find in Christian creeds teachings that are alien to our conception of heavenly parents and of ourselves as children in a divine family. The trends first seen in the Nicene Creed become more pronounced over the next few years. This is an excerpt from the Athanasian Creed. Whosoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he holds the Catholic, universal faith. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons, nor dividing the substance, essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. And yet there are not three Eternals, but one Eternal. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three Gods, but one God. And in this Trinity none is a four or after another, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. Originally ascribed to Athanasius, and now believed to have been written between the 4th and 8th centuries, this creed is a hugely influential statement of Trinitarian thought. Notice in it a further development. At this point, theology is becoming incomprehensible, reflecting belief in the incomprehensible God of Greek philosophy. The creedal foundations of the medieval church were primarily focused on establishing the doctrine of the Trinity. That doctrine became thereafter the central defining tenet of Christianity. For example, 
The Act of Toleration, which the English Parliament passed in 1688, included under its umbrella of safety all dissenting Christians, as long as they did not deny, in preaching or writing, the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity. When, in the 20th century, several mainstream churches issued statements rejecting the Latter-day Saints as a Christian faith, it was a doctrine of the Trinity they cited as explanation. To understand how the simple concept of heavenly parents was subjected to these convoluted and indecipherable developments, we can point to two pre-Christian sources that eventually proved decisive. Theologian Kenneth Kirk explains the first. Jewish memory, he writes, was replete with a whole vast series of theophanies stretching back to the dawn of Jewish national history. Jacob had seen God face to face and lived. So too had Abraham and Moses. Isaiah had beheld the Lord high and lifted up in his temple. Amos and Micah both hinted a similar vision, and so on. Under the impetus of Jewish reformers, the narrative changed dramatically, and different expedients were adopted to secure that the implications of seeing God face to face might be evaded. For example, editors developed the habit of substituting the phrase appear before Yahweh, or be seen by Yahweh, for the phrase, see Yahweh. As a consequence, when the Old Testament canon closed, various influences had combined to dim the hope of the individual Jew that he should see God. Drawing as a church did upon a largely Jewish convert pool, some early Christians imported these cultural predispositions. Edwin Hatch describes a second source of similar influence. Among the original Christians, there was no taste for metaphysical discussion. There was possibly no appreciation of metaphysical conceptions. Indeed, the conception of the transcendence of God is absent. God is near to men and speaks to them. Greek philosophy, however, had elevated whatever is bodiless and transcendent over whatever is physical and material. Because of the pervasive influence of Greek thought on Christianity, the Christian God became unseen and untouched. It was believed that he has no name, and all anthropomorphic conceptions are explained away. Typical modern-day historians continue to show greater respect for these more abstract metaphysical conceptions than for the beliefs outlined in the Apostles' Creed. For example, with a remarkable condescension, Roger Olson writes that hoping to find a correct understanding of God from the early Christians is expecting far too much. Augustine. The medieval creeds lay the basis for Trinitarian thought, but as Latter-day Saints, we may misread that doctrine's significance. It is not the lost knowledge of God's embodiment itself that represents irreparable harm to believers, although as one Catholic scholar writes, divine embodiment would have been part of the early theological mainstream. The real catastrophe is what is lost when God is disembodied. Once Christians abstract God from human form, it is natural to abstract them from human forms of experience as well, especially of pain and suffering. As one historian of religion notes matter-of-factly, the predominant view came to be that God could be said to know about suffering, but not to experience this personally. 
in the view of one theologian sympathetic to that development, a God who suffers would be more appropriately an object of pity than of worship. Augustine, the most potent shaping voice of post-apostolic Christianity, was personally persuaded by the Greek philosophers. Speaking of God, he proclaimed, I did not think of you under the figure of a human body. From the moment I began to know anything of philosophy, I had rejected that idea. Consequently, he also rejected as monstrous the notion that God could be personally affected by human suffering. Who can sanely say that God is touched by any misery, he thundered. In the background of these medieval creeds, then, is the accompanying dogma that God cannot be affected by human suffering, that there is a type of love that emanates from him might be true, but his state is not altered by, affected by, or responsive to our own condition or needs, our yearnings, our heartbreaks, or our own outpourings of love. We are convinced that any meaningful love, by contrast, implies a relationship that extends in both directions and registers a reciprocal impact. Christ is love for this one person, this one place, this one time-bound and time-ravaged self. And whatever is true of Christ, the Lord assured us, must be true of the Father. Throughout the Middle Ages, however, the lamentable legacy of the creeds triumphed over a parental feeling God. Thomas Aquinas, the second most influential voice in the shaping of Christianity, affirmed, To sorrow over the misery of others belongs not to God. This state of affairs, espoused by numerous theologians and prominent Christian authorities, was lamented by 20th century theologian Nicholas Badayev. The God whom official theology tends to construct has no profound relationship with men. He is turned to stone. The departure from the original Christian vision is plain. Our origin as children of compassionate heavenly parents has been nullified. Other fatal developments had unfolded in the late 4th century, when the focus of debate in the Christian church shifted from the Trinity to the role of human will and of God's grace in our salvation. Augustine's contemporary, Pelagius, a British monk intent on reforming the moral laxity of the Church in Rome, had stirred up controversy by his spirited attack on the doctrine of original sin championed by Augustine. An inspired Pelagius denied human depravity and argued that salvation depended in large degree on our freedom to choose between good and evil. He taught that God in making man in his own likeness did not leave him naked and defenceless in the face of his desires, but provided him with the armaments of reason and wisdom so that he could choose to act virtuously. In other words, Pelagius and his followers were moral optimists. They propound that all human beings were born innocent Infants do not enter the world with a special endowment of virtue, but neither do they carry the innate stain of vice. We possess in ourselves the possibility of choosing good over evil. But common observation shows that evil is pervasive. How to explain this? For Pelagius, evil was essentially social. We become whoever we are, largely through imitation. The idea that humans have the ability to choose good over evil, 
turns out to be precisely what King Benjamin and Paul taught. Although their language has frequently confused Latter-day Saints and Christians of other denominations alike. Yes, the natural man is an enemy to God and will be forever and ever unless he putteth off the natural man. However, moments before he spoke these words, King Benjamin had affirmed the automatic salvation of children, and in the next breath he insists it is to the state of a child, that is, a pre-social being, that the natural man must return to become a saint. Given that Augustine view of a child as the clearest evidence of the corrupt Adamic inheritance, the difference between King Benjamin's view and Augustine's position could hardly be starker. Benjamin and Paul both teach that the state in which humans begin life is one of innocence, blamelessness. In any case, the expression natural man is Pauline. As Paul employs the term, it has reference to an acquired worldliness, one we can put off. It is not a statement about human ontology, inherited nature, or innate attributes. In his triple parallelism, the apostle contrasts the spirit of the world with the spirit that is of God, what man's wisdom teacheth with what the Holy Ghost teacheth, and the natural man with he that is spiritual. Natural is in this formation clearly a worldly acquisition that comes from worldly wisdom and human teachings. The poet Christian Wyman put the case in words that defy the traditional Christian view, but echo restoration understanding. Our natures, and nature itself, are not corrupt, but unfinished. Destroying the influence of Pelagius, however, became the central preoccupation of the ultimately victorious Augustine. At the dawn of the 5th century, Augustine unfortunately was changing his opinion about our pre-mortal life. In his simplest early argument upholding the doctrine, he held that we look for a lost coin only if we possessed it earlier. So too, our hunger for God must be explained as a dim recollection of what we once knew. Under a siege from a number of figures in the last years of the 4th century, Augustine reconsidered his support for premortality. He abandoned his defence of the doctrine. Premortality began to vanish in Christian thought, and it was declared heresy soon thereafter. Forsaking premortality occurred in concert with the establishment of creation out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo, which took hold in the same era. In the second century, the theologian Justin Martyr had noted that the prevailing teaching was that he, in the beginning, did of his goodness, for man's sake, create all things out of unformed matter. That doctrine of uncreated matter now fell into disfavour as well. One modern defender of creation, ex nihilo, calls the doctrine the linchpin of Christianity, the truth on which theism stands or falls. What difference does that make to our self-understanding as Christians? The doctrine brings, in its wake, several enormous consequences. For one thing, it interposes a vast distance between ourselves and God. This distance was, in fact, a deliberate intention of the idea's supporters. 
the influential church father Tertullian had in the second or third century expressed the fear that a soul who had an eternal past would be on a par with God. To ensure that we remain very far below God, Tertullian insisted that the soul is born, not eternal. His emphasis reflects what has become a central tenet of Christian thought. In the words of Soren Kierkegaard, there is an infinite, radical, qualitative difference between God and humans. According to Emil Brunner, there is no greater sense of distance than that which lies in the words creator, creation. Man is separated by an abyss from the divine manner of being. The greatest dissimilarity between two things which we can express at all is that between the creator and that which is created. As a result of this early-to-emerge strain of thought, the idea of what the saints call exaltation, or theosis, fell into disrepute. Since antiquity, the implication had been recognised that if we had an origin among the gods, then that was our likely, even inevitable destiny as well. Strip the human story of its origin in heaven, and the logic of the final destination is erased. To change the beginning is to change the ending. In the absence of those heavenly courts above, where and when does the new story begin? Once we reject a heavenly origin as exaltation-bound children of God, our beginning must lie instead in a temporal world, a purgatory into which Adam and Eve were expelled along with all their posterity. Forsaking premortality makes original sin, if not inevitable, at least more reasonable as an explanation of the human condition and human nature. And so, abandoning the understanding of life as an educative journey planned from a pre-mortal world, Augustine refocused the story on what happened in Eden and the condition of universal sinfulness that he believed defines us. He wrote, All sin was thus Adam's first sin, and no human could escape it. How could beings so sunk in sin possibly do anything to earn themselves salvation? So he interpreted human nature as so trapped in sin that both body and spirit are twisted up claustrophobically without any escape. And since nothing about human beings after the fall was worth saving, God's decision as to who should be saved was entirely arbitrary. All the saved must be predestined to salvation and all the damned to damnation before they have committed any deed of any sort. As a consequence of this new focus on universal sinfulness, Augustine diverted the entire stream of Christian thought, which went from a belief in a gradual process of exaltation in which one cooperates with God to the opposite belief, in which God decrees who is saved and who is damned, independent of our choices. The claim that it was even possible to do something about one's own salvation was precisely the doctrine which Martin Luther was to make his particular target. In Luther's analysis, the only free will humankind possessed was the freedom to sin. The question that should and did arise is this. 
Why, then, did God create those whose fall he foreknew? Augustine's answer, to manifest his wrath and to demonstrate his power. Human history was the arena for this demonstration. Reading such a conception of God, one can understand Thomas Jefferson's outrage at Augustine's theory. It would be more pardonable to believe in no God at all than to blaspheme him by such atrocious attributes. Some of Augustine's contemporaries also resisted, unsuccessfully, his position. They felt these were, in the words of David Bentley Hart, weird, uncivilised beliefs concocted by a domineering, psychologically twisted African demagogue. Augustine was from North Africa. Should Christians, Julian of Eclanum asked, really think that a merciful, loving God would torture infants just because they were not baptised? Augustine answered that yes, they're all sinners, all damned. And his views, however wretched, however defamatory of both humans and God alike, carried the day. No figure in human history was more influential in the course that Christian doctrine took in the Western world. That Augustine and the church authorities who embraced his teachings could still profess a belief in God as the God of love is all the proof one could need for how perversely God's love had come to be understood. As for Pelagius, he was accused of heresy, condemned, excommunicated, and according to one tradition, exiled to Egypt. One might say at this point, the rewriting of the primal story is now complete. A historian summarises in language that Latter-day Saints can fully appreciate and applaud the triumph of Augustine's views and the twin condemnation of Pelagius with his defence of free will and human goodness and of Origen with his defence of premortal life ensured the triumph of a Christian theology whose central concerns were human sinfulness, not human potentiality, divine determination, not human freedom and responsibility. Christianity was perhaps poorer for their suppression. It was not just poorer, we would say. Christianity was now fully capable of inflicting a near-universal state of awful woundedness, creating damage we still suffer. By the fourth century, God is rendered an incomprehensible entity who created us, along with the rest of the universe, out of nothing. He is an absolute sovereign, inaccessible, and an enforcer of legalistic justice rather than dispenser of boundless compassion. His human creation sinned in the garden, was expelled from paradise, and transmits a guilty, sinful nature to posterity. We have no, or severely limited, free will, with a fate that was predetermined before we took our first breath. There is no question that the course of Christianity was firmly established with a triumph of Augustine over the beleaguered defenders of God's absolute love and humanity's divine potential. As one historian of early Christianity summarizes the accomplishment of Augustine, the Church now embraced his theology of the eternal damnation of infants dying unbaptized, on the absolute necessity for regeneration through baptism within the Church, on the exclusive power of divine grace 
to save or destroy, on a form of predestination which limited the number of the saved right from the moment of creation. As the doctrine of atonement developed in the medieval period, the most sublime miracle in cosmic history was reconfigured accordingly, and so was God. Rather than heavenly parents who shepherd us back to their presence in a sanctified condition, God the Father became the offended sovereign, demanding recompense for his injured majesty. And so, writes Anselm, history's most influential author of Christian atonement theology, Christ does not come to heal, but to judge. The compassion of a benevolent father, writes Anselm, is wholly contrary to the divine justice, which allows nothing but punishment as the recompense of sin paid by Christ. Therefore, as God cannot be inconsistent with himself, his compassion cannot be of this nature. In other words, love and compassion, as applied to God, are incomprehensible in human or parental terms. God's parental nature has dissolved in the face of an infinite distance. A century after Augustine, one of Christianity's most influential definitions of the Supreme Being had been reformulated by Pseudo-Dionysius from a father to an it. Neither soul nor intellect, nor has it imagination, opinion, reason or understanding, nor can it be expressed or conceived. Neither is it standing, nor moving, nor at rest. Neither has it power, nor is power, nor is light. Neither does it live, nor is it life, nor is it subject to intelligible contact, nor is it spirit according to our understanding, nor filiation, nor paternity. The historian Brinley Rees assesses Augustine's far-reaching impact Though he was sure one of the most loving of men and well-loved by others, he became so obsessed with the idea of God's power that he left little room for his love. Reformation In the common latter-day retelling, a little more than a thousand years after the triumph of Augustine's views, the Reformation shines as a great light in the darkness, paving the way for the Restoration. The facts are rather otherwise. Gutenberg begins commercial printing with movable type in 1440, and within decades in countries across Europe that are outside of Catholic control, Bibles are appearing in vernacular languages. That is a positive development, an essential chapter in the emerging story of religious freedom and pluralism. However, the actual doctrinal changes ushered in by the Reformation, almost without exception, further compound the darkness of the long night. The reason is simple, and the evidence extensive. In 1506, for the first time, Augustine's body of work is published in a complete scholarly edition. When it is studied by Martin Luther and his contemporaries, it creates a theological shockwave. Augustine's focus on original sin, depravity, and a severely constrained human will, is given renewed emphasis to the further diminishment of confidence in innate goodness, human potential, and the exercise of moral freedom. One historian says that Luther's project, 
which spread to the other reformers, was nothing other than reviving, in a more concentrated form, Augustine's radical pessimism about humanity's capacity for salvation. This revolution has been narrowly summarized by the historian B.B. Warfield. The Reformation, he writes, inwardly considered, was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace. That doctrine represents a complete rewriting of the original story, and it is based on Augustine's misreading of what it means to be saved, or in his term, justified. This is how it happens. The word justification in Latin literally means the making of someone to be righteous. In Luther's understanding, it meant the declaring of someone to be righteous. God imputes the merits of the crucified and risen Christ through grace to a fallen human being who remains without inherent merit and who, without this imputation, would remain unrighteous. Christ does not transform us, in other words. He simply declares us righteous and therefore saved. In his translation of the book of Romans, Luther inserts a word that renders Augustine's position on grace to be incompatible with personal effort. Romans 3 verse 28 holds that man is justified by faith. In Luther's Bible, we read that man is justified by faith only. The only was Luther's edition. It is not in the Greek text. When challenged on his edition, Luther responded, I know very well that the word solum is not in the Greek or Latin texts. If your papist wants to make so much fuss about the word sola alone, tell him this, Dr. Martin Luther will have it so. Christ's role, to recall Schleiermacher's words with which we began this book, has been reduced to incoherence. No longer are we divine souls engaged on a journey planned from before creation, being schooled through the educative experiences of mortality, gradually growing into beings like our divine parents. Instead, we are merely human detritus of an Adamic catastrophe, saved or damned as God wills through an imputed righteousness. Along with the newly defined grace, Augustine's many other positions now receive renewed emphasis and reinforcement as dogmas in the Protestant Reformation. Though few of us may be aware of his enduring influence, it is the case that Luther's ideas have found their most fertile ground in America. American religious culture is almost entirely Lutheran and Calvinist in its roots. One of the most important consequences of the European Reformation, writes Massey, was the export of a militant form of English Protestantism to North America. Was this a prelude to the Restoration? When Joseph heard God level his assessment of the state of 19th century Christianity, it was their creeds God singled out for particular condemnation. Contrary to Latter-day Saint mythology, it was not the Catholic creeds of the medieval church that drew forth God's ire. It is unlikely that Joseph would have been familiar with the words or names like Nicaea or Chalcedon or Athanasius or Arius. What Joseph did have to say about Catholicism was largely positive. He wrote, The old Catholic Church 
is worth more than all the other sects, he said in his last recorded sermon. No wonder Joseph saw manifold parallels between Restoration teachings and Catholic belief. One of the most stubborn myths of the Restoration Church is the notion that the Protestant Reformation was a kind of preparatory step toward the Restoration, when in fact the opposite is true. There is no indication that Joseph heard Catholic when the Lord warned of the lasting damage of the creeds, nor are those Catholic teachings suggested when almost 20 years later Joseph was still telling the saints of the confusion sown by those same creeds that were riveted upon the hearts of the children. By contrast, how did the creeds and revised prayer books of Joseph's Protestant world sow confusion that still afflicts so many Latter-day Saints? Excerpts from the Augsburg Confession Produced in 1530, the Augsburg Confession was the definitive creed of the Lutheran Church. As explicitly alluded to previously, the Reformation under Luther was to a large degree the positioning at the centre of theology, Augustine's writings on grace, especially his emphasis on original sin, depravity, and the absence of free will, as most people would understand that term. The Confession states, All men are conceived and born in sin. That is, all men are full of evil lust and inclinations from their mother's wombs, and are unable by nature to have true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this inborn sickness and hereditary sin is truly sin. We concede that all men have free will, if by that term we mean freedom to eat or dress as we please, but such freedom does not extend to the choice to serve God or oppose him. The Book of Common Prayer is the manual used in all Anglican Church services. The 1549 Catholic version included such prayers as Grant that at the day of judgment his soul and all the souls of thy elect departed out of this life may with us and we with them fully receive thy promises. The Protestant revision of 1552 removed all prayers offered on behalf of the dead because they smacked of the old religion in which the living could perform religious acts on behalf of the dead. Latter-day Saints may not see an immediate connection between prayers for the dead and our own temple work, but notice what underlying paradigm they share, one that is abandoned by the Protestant creeds. Saints believe in a porous membrane joining heaven and earth, which allows us to affect the welfare of the dead, and they ours. And we believe that from the beginnings of the everlasting covenant, we are all in a shared endeavour, working for each other's progress, now and forever. Death does not impose impermeable walls that separate us, nor is it the end of our striving. Approved by the English Parliament in 1648, the Westminster Confession establishes the basis of Reformed theology, which was embraced by the Anglicans, by the Puritans in England and the American colonies, and by the Presbyterians. It also served as basis for the Baptist creeds and, with minor modifications, was adopted by the Congregationalists and later the Methodists. 
The Westminster Confession was the creed with which Joseph Smith and his contemporaries would have been most familiar. It reads, The Holy Scriptures are most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased, unto which nothing at any time is to be added by new revelations. There is but one living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. He is the alone foundation of all being. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them. With this creedal development, the future gulf between the Latter-day Saints and other Protestant branches is magnified enormously. In some cases, this confession brought new emphases in creedal Christianity to the fore, in other cases, new doctrinal developments are even further removed from the original gospel. Crucial ways in which Latter-day Saint doctrine differs from the doctrine declared in the Westminster Confession include the following. Latter-day Saints espouse an open rather than a closed canon, along with the principle of continuing revelation. Latter-day Saints embrace a God who has a physical body, and most emphatically, passions, that is, the capacity to be moved to grief by the pain of another. The dominant trend through most of the Christian centuries had been to see God as having no anthropomorphic form and as incapable of suffering in sympathy with humankind, despite occasional voices that had emerged to challenge both tenets. With the Westminster Confession, however, a bodiless and passionless God became explicit dogma for Protestants. Latter-day Saints reject creation ex nihilo, believing that God organised the universe out of eternally existing matter. While creation ex nihilo had long been dominant in Christian thought, Calvin pushed this belief to appalling lengths in claiming that God is the source of all that is. Calvin stipulates that God ordains all events, historical and personal, tragic and horrific, that unfold in human history. Calvin's God does not merely foresee and permit all that transpires. As sovereign, he personally planned and orchestrated the entirety of history. In Calvin's view, all events are in God's blueprint, including the fall of the first man and in him the ruin of his posterity, which God, at his own pleasure, arranged. In Luther's language, nothing takes place but as God wills it. God foresees, purposes, 
and as all things according to his immutable, eternal, and infallible will. By this thunderbolt, free will is thrown prostrate and utterly dashed to pieces. Latter-day Saints emphatically reject the doctrine of predestination as they pertain to human destinies. Human beings are free forever, free to choose liberty and eternal life, or to choose captivity and death. Finally, we believe humankind does not inherit the sin or guilt of Adam and is not inherently good or evil, but rather innocent. Though we all inhabit a mortal condition with its earthly desires and propensities, total depravity and deadness to all good are not accurate characterizations of human nature. The sum total of the Reformation's creedal developments were criticised by the Catholic humanist Erasmus and affirmed by Luther. Erasmus protested this new version of God who seemed to delight in the torments of the miserable and to be an object of hatred rather than of love. In response to Erasmus's complaint, Luther wrote, This is the highest degree of faith, to believe he is merciful, who saves so few and damns so many, to believe him just, who according to his own will makes us necessarily damnable. In our own era, the leading physicist Stephen Weinberg noted the logical implications of such belief. With or without religion, good people can behave well and bad people can do evil. But for good people to do evil, that takes religion. Our intention in reviewing this history is not to cast aspersions on men or movements of the past that shaped the Christian past. In most cases, the reformers were motivated by legitimate concerns about abuses and doubtful doctrines of the institutional church of their day. However, as we have tried to indicate, in this process of reform, they often compounded the slanders against our heavenly parents and their designs in spite of a number of salutary developments across Christian thought in more recent times. And it may be well, as a modern theologian states, that most of us today have travelled far enough from Augustine and Calvin to believe that the Heavenly Father of Jesus' teaching wants to save all men. Our point is that those formative ideas of the Reformation are so deeply embedded in our Christian past and consciousness that there is likely a connection between this history and the roots of much of our awful woundedness that runs so deep today. For example, one historian emphasizes that the concept of hell did not just survive in antebellum America. It thrived. It saturated private and public discourse. Why, she goes on to ask, did so many Americans frame their concerns about themselves and their friends, families, nation and world in terms of divine punishment and everlasting torment? As examples of this legacy that stretches back centuries, we could note the following. In the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards gave his famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. 
His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Modern apologists often deny that that sermon was typical of Edwards or of the harsh Calvinism he preached. However, Edwards gave the sermon repeatedly, generally achieving the same effect. They, his audience, suddenly realised that they are horribly doomed. Before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? I'm going to hell. Shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. An 18th century anthology used by thousands of Americans depicted a Christian who agonised of the vast uncertainty I am struggling with. The force and vivacity of my apprehensions, every doubt wears the face of horror and would perfectly overwhelm me, but for some faint gleams of hope which dart across the tremendous gloom. What tongue can utter the anguish of a soul suspended between the extremes of infinite joy or eternal misery? I tremble and shudder. By the 19th century, the link between religious trauma and clinical mental illness was becoming well established. Researchers found religious anxiety to be a leading cause of insanity. One study determined that out of the various causes, religious anxiety was number one by a threefold factor. Another physician wrote about suicide due to religious melancholy, noting that the traumatic fear of imminent damnation is not infrequent in this country. One of the 19th century's most popular preachers relied on terror, guilt and shame. He threatened that at the judgment, husbands and wives will have to testify against their spouses, parents will see their unsaved children swept to hell for reasons directly attributable to themselves. Summarising the impact of what one scholar calls the founding of militant Protestantism in America, another historian notes that the marriage of religion and fear in the United States is a prevalent one. In this religion of fear, tales of terror have long served civic purposes in this haunted nation. These trends were not universal, but they were pervasive and continue to manifest themselves even in our own religious tradition. One could read Elder Dieter Uchtdorf's words as a commentary on this long and tragic history of discourse. He wrote, It is true that fear can have a powerful influence over our actions and behaviour, but that influence tends to be temporary and shallow. Fear rarely has the power to change our hearts. People who are fearful may say and do the right things, but they do not feel the right things. And in the present moment, we may not be taking our lives out of fear of damnation or shrieking in the church aisles, from boredom maybe, but not terror. But various forms of damage across the spiritual and emotional spectrum raise the question of what role, for good and for ill, religious language and paradigms exert. Trauma and woundedness take many forms, but much healing takes one. Houston Smith writes in reference to the early Christians, The only power that can effect transformation of the order we have described is love. Imagination may fail us here, but logic need not. 
If we felt loved, not abstractly or in principle, but vividly and personally, by one who unites all power and perfection, the experience could melt our fear, guilt and self-concern permanently. As Kierkegaard said, if at every moment, both present and future, I was certain that nothing has happened or can ever happen that would separate us from the infinite love of God, that would be the reason for joy. And we can know, as Paul did, that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Might reordering our religious language to be more consistent with this love, known to the first Christians, at least help to address our unprecedented rates of depression, anxiety, divorce, suicide, alcoholism, addiction, and other mental health issues. Recent data reveals how much we are struggling in our modern world. Between 2005 and 2017, the proportion of teens ages 12 to 17 who reported the symptoms of a major depressive episode within the last year rose from 8.7% to 13.2%, data showed. Adults aged 18 to 25 showed similar trends. In a 2017 survey of nearly 48,000 college students, 64% say they had felt very lonely in the previous 12 months, while only 19% reported that they never felt lonely, according to the American College Health Association. Students also reported feeling overwhelming anxiety, 62%, or very sad, 69%, and that things were hopeless, 53%. Nearly 12% of these students had seriously considered suicide. Some scientists now believe that extreme feelings of guilt in children can be a strong warning sign for mental disorders such as depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and bipolar disorder later on in life. Research has long linked excessive feelings of guilt to mental disorders in adults. The DSMV lists feelings of excessive guilt as a symptom for depression. In the 21st century, something novel has crept over the horizon of contemporary maladies, creating a new landscape. Ross Duthard, notes that statistics alone don't tell the whole story. While it is true, he says, that teenagers in the internet age are more stressed out, more anxiety-ridden, more prone to depression than teenagers in the more dangerous past, the larger picture our world presents is one in which there is a general, almost universal, tranquilization of life. Youth today are the most medicated generation in history, which is not to say that much of it is not medically warranted. Tellingly, the most popular drugs, whether prescribed or illicit, are designed to be calming, relaxing, offering a smoothed-out experience rather than a spiky high. Even the opioid epidemic is a new kind of drug pandemic, one that quiets rather than inflames. Andrew Sullivan summarises the common feature in all of the above. 
The drugs now conquering America are downers. They are not the means to engage in life more vividly, but to seek a respite from its ordeals. Another symptom reveals the same underlying crisis. The higher education push for safe zones, trigger warnings, and a generally flattened and inoffensive marketplace of ideas. Greater empathy and sensitivity are wonderful developments, as long as they do not encourage a desperate escapism masquerading as a freedom without historical precedent. The freedom to be safe, broadly defined. We were willing to know hurt, Francine Benyon reminds us. It seems reasonable to suspect that the craving for safety in all its forms is a factor in that ideological insularity, retreat into micro-communities, and unprecedented social and political polarisation that are so incompatible with the open-hearted Zion communities we are called to construct. History and social science alike conclude that, in the words of the angel, our modern society is in a state of awful woundedness. And the angel addressing Nephi tied at least some of that woundedness afflicting our world directly and explicitly to our religious inheritance. Presumably, as beneficiaries of the restored plain and precious things, we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have the antidote, the healing balm for some of the general condition of spiritual and emotional impairment. And often, that proves to be the case. Yet many saints, a few of whom shared their thoughts in our opening pages, are wondering how it is possible for the restored Church to inflict or add injury, rather than proffering the balm of Gilead? Why can church attendance create as much unease as solace? Why do we not, as Brigham Young recognised, more often enjoy the spirit of the gospel we profess? In what follows, we want to suggest very specific ways in which our language continues to bear the traces of the injurious legacy we tracked previously. As saints, we rely upon scripture and revelation as our spiritual guides, and much of our hurt is related to both. As one member wrote us, my own mental well-being required a path of gentleness, love and understanding. The scriptures weren't always helpful in this process. So let us first consider the place of those resources in our spiritual journey.